When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. This week, we're joined by Detroit Pistons head coach and president, Stan Van Gundy. This episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick is presented by SeatGeek, the perfect place to buy and sell tickets. Today's sponsor is SoFi. Refinancing your student loans with SoFi can save you an average of $19,000. Plus, you'll get access to their entrepreneur program that can help you grow your business. Learn more at SOFI.com. Terms and legal conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. Today's show is also sponsored by Mack Weldon. Guys, I have to tell you, whatever you're wearing right now, Mack Weldon is better. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershorts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. And Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. They aren't just comfortable. Mack Weldon looks good and it performs well too. It's good for everyday life, going to work, going on dates, and working out. All of their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code JJ. Easy shopping, great customer service, good looking, super comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, and hoodies. MacWeldon.com, 20% off using promo code JJ. Yahoo Sports presents the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick, powered by digital media. Find your voice. And now, your host, JJ Reddick. All right, welcome back to this week's episode of the Vertical Podcast. Momentarily, we are going to be joined by Detroit Pistons head coach Stan Van Gundy. Also, my former head coach for five years with the Orlando Magic. He's a guy that I really enjoyed playing for, and I'm not sure there's anyone in the NBA world that I have more respect for. So I'm really looking forward to sitting down with him and picking his brain a little bit. Before we get to that, I just want to share with you how fun it was for me to go on ESPN last week and join ESPN Countdown, NBA Countdown, as a studio analyst. I had done it previously in January. It was the 30-minute show. In that particular instance, I think we started recording at 4.30 p.m. Pacific time. It was a 30-minute show. I got in a car accident that day, so I was running a little late, and I probably rolled into the ESPN offices at about 4.18 p.m. I didn't have my suit on yet, so I had to change into a suit, and then I kind of walked out of the changing room and literally walked onto set and we recorded. So there wasn't a whole lot that went into it. Uh, But this particular time for the Eastern Conference Finals, they invited me to join them uh, in their pre-production meeting. I got to sit in on that. We did a pre-production call the day before. uh, And then getting to do an hour show versus the quick 30-minute show uh, was a lot different. So overall, it was just like an incredible learning experience for me in something that I'm obviously very interested in doing potentially. And uh, 
you know, I think there's always going to be growing pains anytime you do anything. Uh, even with this podcast, I hope I'm getting better. If you if you think I'm getting better, please tell someone and that they should listen to this podcast. But I feel like I'm getting better. I feel like I'm getting more comfortable, uh, more confident in what I'm doing. Uh, certainly having great guests on helps. Uh, guests like Ryan Anderson and Jamal Crawford, uh, Aaron Rodgers. These, these guys have been, just been tremendous guests. And the same thing applies... Uh, with doing TV work, it was just, it was very cool. And, and, and the thing I really enjoyed about this particular instance uh, with ESPN was just the feedback they gave me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't all positive, which was great. And I feel like if I want to do something post-career, I want to do it well and I want to be really good at it. And, uh, you know, some constructive criticism is always accepted. It's always accepted. Um, apparently I need to use more inflection in my voice, something along the lines of I'm Ron Burgundy. So I'm working on it. And, uh, you know, anything you guys want to give me for the podcast, I always look at the Twitter comments for the podcast. I don't look at troll comments, but I do look at Twitter comments, uh, anything on Instagram, you guys want to send my way. I appreciate it. Let's go to today's guest. I'm very excited. Before I do that, again, I just want to thank ESPN for giving me the opportunity to join them in studio. They have a terrific people working over there. So let's get to today's guest. Detroit Pistons head coach and president, Stan Van Gundy, my former head coach in Orlando. Stan, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. Glad to do it. So I have to say, I am really just need to say thank you to the Van Gundy family in general. I feel like you guys always give me a lot of love. Our assistant strength coach was actually at the combine last week in Chicago and I get a text from him and I guess you had told some story about me to all of the the strength coaches. So I appreciate that. And then during the ESPN broadcast on Wednesday, your brother Jeff called me a quote, great podcaster. (laughs) Now that one I hadn't heard. No, my story at the, uh, with the uh, strength coaches, actually, what I said was, um, you know, I was talking to them, and obviously I have no knowledge of their field, but just talking to them about their jobs. And I, I said, look, I, I said, you know, you can't make, you got to be accountable for helping these guys get stronger, and you can't make excuses. I said, we don't need you guys for guys like J.J. Redick. He's going to get himself ready to play. He'll get, oh. if you can't help him, he'll find somebody that will. We, we don't need you guys for them. We need you. And I didn't obviously mention names, but I said, right. we need you for the guys who are a little bit lazy or not focused. And so that was how I had brought you up. Oh, I appreciate it. I know one year you spoke at the Sloan uh, conference in, in Massachusetts. And I think you said something very positive about my defense. You were the first person to ever say something positive about my defense as well. So I appreciate that too. Well, yeah, I mean, I was making the point and, and it's, you know, I, I guess it could even go beyond you, J.J., that, you know, I, I don't think – we were talking about defensive metrics in general and all the analytics, sure. and I still haven't seen anything that I really like or trust in terms of that because a lot of it will be like, you know, what happens to a guy one-on-one, and if you're the primary guy gardening, what percentage do you – you know, the team score? And, and I don't really think that hits at the at the essence of defense. and. And what I said is that, you know, with a guy like J.J. Redick, you know, you can have a great defense as a team because he's not going to make mistakes. He's going to play to the game plan. 
He's not going to give up easy baskets. And those are the things I think these metrics miss out on. And I really, you know, I don't know really your thoughts. If there are any guys who can actually go out and lock somebody down one-on-one in the NBA, there's very few of them. And that's not really how you're going to be able to build a great defense. You build a great defense with a lot of, you know, highly committed guys who are tough and smart and focused and don't make mistakes. And and I've believed that my entire time in the NBA and probably always will. I totally agree with you. And, and some of the, the old school metrics, the easy ones, the steals and blocks, guys would get defensive player of the year. And, you know, we look back now and we have these w- different ways to measure their defensive rating or whatever it may be. And people are like, I have no idea how this guy won defensive player of the year. But I, to your point, I do think – you know, to have a great defense, you don't need five great individual defenders. You need guys that are disciplined. You need guys that buy into the game plan. You need a defensive guru to kind of structure a, a great game plan. But yeah, you don't need, I mean, it helps if you have great lockdown defenders, but what is there, five in the league? Three, yeah, maybe? Maybe. <laughs> There's, yeah, maybe. maybe. Uh, it's yeah, tough. No, and, and look, I think to your point, a guy we both know well, Steve Clifford, I, I mean, I always yeah. go back to his first team. Uh, he got as a head coach in Charlotte. Uh, they were a top five defense. And, you know, he was playing Al Jefferson, who's not a great defender. Uh, Kimball Walker, who's really small. You know, trying to think who – really not good personnel. Uh, Josh McRoberts, your guy Josh McRoberts. Yeah. I mean, and they put together a top five defense because, as you said, Steve did a great job coaching them. And they had had not very much success, so they were all very invested in trying to get better. And they went out and played hard and did it together, really without anyone who was a uh, was a real good individual defender. Yeah, I would say probably the only person in that lineup was Kid Gilchrist, but he's he's still so young, so he's learning, and so part of it is is learning, you know, the nuances of game plans and whatnot, and not just like, all right, I'm going to lock this guy down. It's it's different. It's tough, and I think that maybe the casual fan doesn't always understand that aspect of uh, of NBA defense. No, I agree. Like, we've got a, our rookie, Stanley Johnson, um, I think is, is a very good individual defender, particularly for a 19-year-old sure. kid. And, and he'll really get up into people. But, but it's hard for us right now to play good defense with him on the floor because, as you said, there's a lot to learn about NBA defense and really recognizing situations. And so he's often a step behind off the ball. And so, like, if he were guarding somebody like you running off the screen, he'd be late. You know, you'd get separation. Now, if you're just talking, give somebody the ball and isolate, yeah, he's going to be really good. But our team defense suffered uh, with him. I think he will end up being a great defender. But until he learns those things, uh, you know, it has to go beyond the toughness and the individual part of it. Right. As you get older in your career and you you get more reps, I, I think I've mentioned this on my podcast before, but one of the things that happens is you start recognizing patterns. And there's there's really only so many actions that can happen. And then off of those actions, there's only so many misdirections that can happen. And for a young player, it's really difficult to recognize that. But as you get older and, and you, you kind of scheme and you, you recognize, okay, these guys are all these guys are all disciples of Pat Riley. So here's the stuff they run, and here's the patterns you're going to see over and over again. Or here's, this, here's the guys that, that came from Pop's coaching tree, and you start, you start getting a feel for how different teams and different coaching trees kind of play. One question for you specifically, is, is KCP, is he one of the, the individual guys that you would put up there? 
in terms of individual defense? Well, he's very good individually, but I, again, and I think it goes to both of our points here, even he, I wouldn't say, is a, is a lockdown guy. I mean, I, I don't think he can go out and just lock guys down every night. I mean, to me, maybe uh, Kawhi Leonard now, when Bruce Bowen was in the league, uh, those are the guys I think of, and they're so rare. That I, you know, I, I love KCP. I think he's a really good individual defender. I think he's a good pick-and-roll defender but I don't think he can just lock guys down. And he's still at the point at 23 years old that you were right. talking about. Uh, case in point, our game with you guys this year, you know, we had come out of the tie at timeout talking about, you know, being aware on the weak side right. of the hammer on the weak side. And he got caught a step late, tried to recover and ran by you. You hit a three, go into overtime and we lose the game. You know, those kind of things still, they're happening less to him. But yeah. still happening from time to time. I two years. He's a guy who takes great pride, like you did. In two years, I don't think that'll happen to him, you know. But right now, there's still four or five times this year that things like that would happen to him in crucial situations. So that learning curve, you know, it, it takes some time in this league, like you said, to recognize all those different situations and all the counters and things that could be coming. It was hard for me to figure this stuff out too and and my first year with you was my second year in the league and it was the first time that I had ever been taught like sort of that style of defense so it's like the Riley stuff you know your stuff Cliff stuff Thibodeau stuff you know in terms of of everybody pulling over on the weak side um, I can remember a time you may not remember this but I remember uh, our first practice in China. So we had been in training camp for maybe two weeks. We go to China, our first practice there. Uh, we're working on side pick and rolls. And for like three straight possessions, I didn't get the concept of being in that strong side corner and bumping Bo Outlaw on the roll. And he, he scored three straight layups. And you absolutely ripped into me. In fact, I think it was the probably the worst I've ever been yelled at in my life Kevin Kruger, Lon Kruger's son, came over to me afterwards, and he's like, he's like, man, I've I've never heard a coach go at someone like that. Do you remember that? But that's but that's not really my question. But I don't know if you remember that or not. You know what? I, I hate to say this; it makes me look even worse. But I've yelled at so many people that they probably all run together. And right. and I do know as time went on, I mean, you were a guy who really didn't get on very much because you didn't make many mistakes. Now, obviously, that was early on, but. Um, you know, as time went on, yeah. you know, I remember we used to laugh about it sometimes uh, as a coaching staff that, you know, that we'd have to find something to yell at you about just so everybody else would realize that, you know, that we were I, still thing, getting on everybody. Yeah, the, the thing is, I, I've never minded that. And that's actually something I wanted to talk with you about. And we were going to talk about it later, but I'll just bring it up now. So I, I, I've always been like one of those guys who who's like, um, I'm a look in the mirror guy. Like if I, you know, if we lose a game and I play good play bad like I'm the first thing I always do is say like all right how, how can I play better and one of the reasons that I have so much respect for you and and uh guys like Martian Gortat you know I had Ryan Anderson on last week on the podcast you know he he thinks so highly of you Jameer all these guys is because you're like that I've never I don't know that I've ever been around any coach and I've played for great coaches and play for a great coach right now but I, I don't know that I've ever been around any coach who holds himself so accountable. I've never asked you this. Why is that? Is that something that because of how you were raised? Is that something that you and Jeff do? I mean, what what kind of inspires that? 
Well, I would say, first of all, yeah, a little bit from my uh, dad. My dad coached for over 40 years, and we grew up around it. And, uh, you know, my dad was always one that I think, you know, was looking in the mirror, and, and his first thought after a game or even after a practice is, you know, what he could have done better. Now, obviously, his job within that practice and within that game a lot of times would be correcting players. Um, so he would get on them. But after a game when we would see him, you know, first thing that he would talk about is, you know, his substitution pattern or his schemes defensively and what he should have done or we made a mistake here. And it wasn't necessarily to to beat up on himself, just trying to get better, just like you're talking about as a player. Um, my brother was always like that. Um, I think it was, you know, it all came from my dad. But But also I think, you know, as a coach, if you're going to be really demanding and – hold players accountable, which we try to do, then you have to hold yourself accountable. And I, I think, you know, if, if you don't, then it's then it's not holding people accountable. Then it's just blaming people. With you specifically, do you ever feel like, like you go too far with that, though, in terms of uh, beating yourself up? I want to I tell people a story. The last time Stan and I talked in person – uh, for a lengthy period of time was was two years ago, your first year in Detroit. It was December, so it was fairly early in the season. And uh, we beat you guys, and I came in the locker room afterwards and spent about 20 minutes with you. I've never seen you so down, and I've never seen you harder on yourself. Uh, so is that a challenge for you specifically to balance that, like holding yourself accountable as a coach but but not beating yourself up too much? It, it is, and the, and the challenge is, to keep moving forward, uh, to not get stuck in being so upset with whatever mistake it is I, I think I made and, and the loss, you just sort of get stuck in that and, and don't move on to the next game. And then the second challenge is, just like players go through, is I don't think anybody really talks about this, but with your confidence as a coach. You know, when we were in Orlando and we're winning 59 games and everything else, <laughs> um, just like a player who's shooting the ball well, you, you have you have great confidence. You, you think you know you go in to do a game plan or make a substitution in a game or draw up a play at a timeout. It seems like everything's working, and so you have great confidence. When you start the year like we did two years ago, in the time period you're talking about at five and twenty-three, yep. nothing's working. You're not getting guys to defend. Nothing's working, and so your confidence starts to go too. And, and you, I found myself, you know, going into meetings where we'd be talking about game plans and no confidence in anything that we would come up with that it would work because when you're five and 23, just like if you were five for 28 from the floor, it's tough to shoot that next shot with confidence. It's the same thing with <laughs> coaches and you fight that battle all the time. I've actually never heard a coach say that before, that there is – confidence issues with coaches and and partly I think and you know this obviously but if a coach were to ever walk in a locker room and had a defeated demeanor and an unconfident demeanor guys would eat him up so I think for any coach maybe internally or you know in meetings with other uh, staff members maybe there is that discussion but I as a player I've never ever once thought oh this coach has no confidence because because he wouldn't last, he wouldn't make it another day. Guys would, guys in the NBA just would eat you up. So one of the th- unique things about uh, kind of your specific situation, you're you're talking about this confidence as a coach, and, and nothing's working right. But you're also 
you know, the president of basketball operations. So how much of that initially was the personnel you had trying to fit into the system you wanted to play defensively and offensively? And then secondly, part of that question is, this is your first time coaching and doing front office stuff. So, so how is, how difficult and what are the challenges that uh, that's presented in terms of in season balancing both roles? You know, I, I think to your first question about the personnel, uh, when we first got here, when we got to five and 23 and, um, started to make some significant personnel moves, our, our owner, Tom Gores, uh, made the point to me, you know, and he's a highly successful private equity guy and a real energetic, positive thinker, but he put a good spin on it. He said, you know what, in the long term, it's probably better that we're five and 23 instead of 12 and 16, because if we were 12 and 16, we'd probably be thinking out, oh, we just need to get a little bit better. Now we know how bad we are and we, that we have to make significant changes. And we did, we started to really turn over our roster at that point, and we knew probably uh, three weeks into that season that this just wasn't going to work, uh, that we were going to need to make uh, a lot of changes, and then we were able to do that. Um, I think the biggest challenge in doing both jobs is it, it's not a workload problem. I've got great people around me, uh, both on the coaching side and on the front office side, so you know, Jeff Bauer is going to run the day-to-day front office. He, he did a great job in New Orleans. He's run his own team successfully. I know he can do that work. You know, with Bob Byer, Brendan Malone, Malik Allen, Tim Hardaway, those guys can take a lot of the load off coaching. But the biggest challenge for me is just trying to decide, you know, where is the most valuable way for me to spend my time? You know, am I better off? That makes sense you know, today going in and, and doing coaching work, like sitting down and watching these playoff games to see what I can learn in terms of coaching next year, or I am, am I better off watching draft, you know, film of draft guys, or am I better off watching film of free agent guys? You know, where's the best way for me to spend my time? What's most valuable uh, to the organization? And I, I've found that to be a significant challenge. It's gotten better as I've listened to especially Jeff Bauer, you know, and let him sort of direct me on, on where he thinks I should be spending my time, particularly this time of year. But, but that's a challenge. Yeah, in season, I would assume it would be. I know how much film you watch and, and how much film your staff watches. At any point in time uh, in these first two years, was there a moment in season where you're like, man, I, I kind of maybe have overextended myself a little bit? No, not really. Like I said, I sort of leave the front office stuff to Jeff and, and those guys in the front office. You know, we come down on the Tobias Harris trade was a pretty big one. Reggie Jackson the year before, obviously, I get involved in that. But that's a that's a two, three, four day window where you're really working on those things. You know, otherwise, I'm just coaching. So it's really not yeah. uh, a thing where I get where I get overextended on that stuff. So going along with this, I know you're a big Ray Dalio guy. For, for any listeners who don't know who Ray Dalio is, he, he runs a hedge fund uh, in Connecticut. I believe it's called Bridgewater. And Pat Garrity, who works for you now, he, he, uh, he used to work for Ray Dalio. But Ray Dalio has this really unique culture where he wants absolute transparency. You know, He wants people to disagree with each other and then be able to argue a point. 
I know in your coaching staff in Orlando, you enjoyed that. You enjoyed having guys who would take the opposite kind of perspective than you. Have you have you implemented some of Ray Dalio's stuff in your front office work? Well, I hope so. I mean, we've certainly tried to, and certainly that's one of the things that Pat, I think, brought to our organization um, was that culture and business practices, best business practices in general. It's one of the reasons we wanted to bring uh, – to bring Pat on because I don't think most front offices have anyone with that background or, or, or able to bring that perspective. So I thought it was really helpful. I, I think the transparency and the accountability thing is really good and, and getting to the point in any organization, sports or otherwise, where constructive criticism and, and a real desire for improvement across the board is accepted and it's not a negative i mean it's not seen you know if you do it enough it just becomes the the way to do things it doesn't become a criticism so when somebody's saying to me hey you know you need to you need to calm down right now on the bench that's not a you know somebody saying to me hey you're terrible at what you do it's <laughs> somebody just saying what they think needs to happen for the best of our organization and when it's again, when it's practiced across enough people throughout your organization, I think criticism is is taken differently and taken in the most constructive way and taken the way it should be. And and, and that it starts at the top. I mean, it, you have to hold the people at the top accountable to get the people below them to accept that. I'm going to use a quote right here. Uh, I may butcher the quote, but there's a quote. It says most people would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. Do you know who said that? I do not. Yeah, I don't either. But someone said that to me the other day. <laughs> they couldn't remember who quoted it. But no, I, but it I think great, it's so true, it though. It's a great quote. It's a, it is. I mean, we all want to be praised, but you know, there's this guy. And I, I would. Lo- I wish I could think of his name. While I was coaching in Orlando, I know I brought him up to you. I, I went up one summer and. Um, I, I went up and saw this guy at Florida State. He's a professor, and it's killing me that I can't remember his name. But, but anyway, what he does is study world-class performers across a lot of dis- different disciplines, musicians. He's done pe- chess players, uh, athletes. He does a lot with people who, who develop outstanding memories and things like that. And one of the things that really stuck with me with what he said when I went up there is he said the one thing he has found, and I think this would apply to you for sure. One thing he has found with the best performers is they don't just accept coaching. They demand it. And so he was talking specifically about top musicians, that if they're going in and playing every day, and these are great people. So what they're doing is probably playing very well, but if they're, teachers, their conductors, whoever, are just saying, hey, that's great, they'll listen to that about three or four times and they want somebody else teaching them because they want to be the absolute best and they know the only way to get there is to have people correct them and make them better and they won't accept anything else. And that's what he has found across the board uh, from people who are able to maximize their potential. That reminds me, did you, did you watch the movie Whiplash? I did. I absolutely did. One of my favorite movies, but the instructor, coach, whatever you want to call him, conductor, he, he says in there, like, the, the worst thing in the English language is good job, telling someone good job. And, uh, I mean, I got to say, I have, a, I have a son now, and, like, even, like, with parenting, it's tough because you want 
to praise your kid, but you also you don't want your kid to grow up with a false sense of security or a false sense of ability. And I, I think for anybody who performs at a high level, you do want criticism, you want instruction, you want coaching because, look, the ultimate goal is to win, right? So if it's something that's even minute and very small that can make a difference in a game seven or a game six, I need to hear it. I need to hear it for sure. Uh, you mentioned going up to this guy in Florida State, and I don't know if you still do this, but I was always fascinated. During the off season. you would travel all over the country. You'd talk to different uh, leaders, coaches. First of all, do you still do that, and, and what do you hope to gain from that? I still do it. I mean, you know, one or two trips or, you know, try to meet with people. Sometimes, you know, you're able to even bring them into where, to where you are. I, I just think there's so much to learn in terms of leading and teaching and, you know, motivating and things like that, that just getting new ideas, I think, is, uh, is imperative to, to my own growth. Um, but it also is very motivating uh, for me. You know, I, I think any of us in anything we do that gets, you just sort of get stuck doing the same thing over and over, uh, you can lose motivation. And so hearing how other people do things, you know, I, I think for me is motivating and inspiring as well as just educational in the way to do things. Stan, that's really good stuff. Before we go on, I want to take a minute to tell our listeners about SoFi and helping reduce their student loans. It's graduation time and the beginning of a whole new chapter in your life. Heading into the so-called real world can be an exciting adventure. That is, until you start looking at all those loans you're going to need to pay for it all. Private school, public school, let's be honest, it doesn't matter. It's all expensive no matter where you go. And while student loans can be great, paying them off is no picnic. Well, someone's figured out a better way, and that's SoFi. SoFi is helping people beat their debt with student loan refinancing that saves an average of $19,000. Members get great free perks too, like career coaching and resume building workshops, and even tips on how to become a better negotiator. So enjoy graduation, enjoy this time right now, treat yourself and take that victory lap, but then get off to a good start with the help of SoFi. SoFi supports the Vertical Podcast, and we all want you to roll out of college on good financial footing. Visit SOFI.com to learn more. Terms and conditions apply at SoFi.com slash legal. All right, Stan, back to it. Going back to your tenure in Detroit, you mentioned earlier this offseason in, in an interview with, with Zach Lowe uh, at ESPN that you felt like two years in, you had made some progress, and that's pretty obvious in terms of win total, uh, you guys made the playoffs in your second year. But when you signed your five-year contract, what was your expectation after year two? What was your ex- What is your expectation going forward three, four years into this contract? You know, I, I'm one that has, has never been a big on, you know, trying to set number goals and things like that. You know, I, I never have done it. You know, we want to win X number of games. I, I just – right. You know, I think it's hard. I mean, and there's danger on both sides is, you know, you, you can really undershoot it. Like, I'll tell you, in in Orlando, I didn't think it would come as quick. I would have never expected it to come as quickly as it did. It was a fairly young team and, and the whole thing and, and went from 40 wins a year before I got there to the NBA Finals two years later. I mean, things just sort of came together. So if I were setting goals – I probably would have, you know, that year set a goal. We had won 52 the year before, probably 
55 wins and let's try to get to the conference finals, you know? And so your goals aren't high enough. I, I think it's always, you know, it's cliche, but I, I think you try to just stay focused on the next practice and the next game and getting better. Now, from a president's viewpoint, from the front office, it's a little bit different because you're thinking more long-term. But even there, it wasn't a goal of, well, we want to be in the playoffs in two years. I mean, it was a goal of our owners, for sure, because he'd already had the team for a couple of years. But from from our standpoint, Jeff Bauer and I, um, it was really about you know changing our roster to get the kind of people uh, that we wanted. Tough, hardworking, committed guys, you know, that would come and play, play the right way and play to win and be unselfish, uh, play hard, defend, things like that. And we were able to turn our roster over fairly quickly to get those kind of guys. Now, we still need to get better in a lot of areas, um, but I really like the character of our team now. I mean, when I go to practice every day, it's guys who want to get better, who want to work hard, who don't have a problem with being coached, who are, for the most part, unselfish. It's just a good group. And and that was really our goal because we knew we couldn't take any other steps in terms of wins and losses or playoffs or anything else until we had the right kind of people on our roster. And, And the one thing I learned coming here from my stints in Miami and Orlando and then just observing the league is, you know, you're not going to change people as a coach. You you can set the right environment maybe, but, you know, Bill Belichick says it all the time. You know, I love his quote. You know, if you want a uh, smart, tough football team, then you better go out and get smart, tough football players. And if, you, if you're ever arrogant enough to think you're going to take selfish, lazy guys and change them, I think that's foolhardy. That's not going to happen. You know, so for us, it was about getting the right kind of people uh, in our locker room. And we feel like we've done that now. And now it's a matter of trying to continually improve our talent base without detracting from the character of our team. And, and as you know, that's a challenge. Finding guys who, who have character is not hard. Finding talented guys is not hard. Uh, finding the guys that have both. Uh, can really be a challenge. It is a challenge. And listening to you answer that question reminded me of our like last week together in Orlando. Uh, I, I want to say it was right after we had lost to Indiana in the playoffs. This is uh, at the end of the, the lockout year. Uh, but you said something to me, and I, and I told you I agreed with you, but you said something to me along the lines of, I'd almost rather lose with a great group of guys than win with a bunch of assholes. It, it was something along those lines. But we all want to win, so it is it is hard, I think, you know, and I, I'm not in this world, but it is hard for a front office exec and a coach to kind of balance wanting to get talented guys but also wanting to get guys that fit within your culture because ultimately you, you do want to enjoy going to work every day, and at the end of a season you want to say, all right, this was a great group of guys that I, that I enjoyed. I find it fascinating, though, that you, you don't necessarily measure progress with some sort of uh, tangible number. So I, I guess that's interesting because I know how badly you want to win. And while it's maybe not a number, I assume that, that you would like to make the finals and, and that's a goal and winning a championship is a goal or, 
or are you are you really so focused on that day to day stuff and that's what you can control? Well, here's the thing. I mean, we all want to win, and, and certainly we want to win a championship, and that's the ultimate goal, I would think, of every franchise in the NBA, and we're no different. But I think, you know, that that's a goal. I mean, like I can't go into a day of work, a day of practice. Uh, a player can't step on the floor and, and say, you know, or at least it's not productive to say, hey, I want to win a championship. I mean, what you've got to do is you've got to go into that game and say, you know what, I've, I've got to make sure that I'm not giving J.J. Redick open threes tonight. We've got to make sure we move the ball. We've got to get back on defense. I mean, to me, those are tangible things that you can do. For a front office, yeah. it's about getting the right kind of people. And, and that doesn't mean that you, at the end of the day, we know we're judged by results and we all want results, but it's like the title of uh, – Bill Walsh's book that I'm rereading for about the 10th time right now, the score takes care of itself. And if you do things the right way, you've got to have trust that at the end of the day, it will work. And, and so what happens sometimes, I think to all of us is in this business is you can be tempted to take shortcuts to get those results and, you know, take on two or three guys that, or maybe low-character guys, but great talent. And for a while, that may work because, you know, I mean, it takes time for a locker room to come together, and it takes time for a locker room to break down. Um, So those guys might come in and give you an immediate boost, but over time, it starts to, you know, decay everything you've built up. I don't think that'll work in the long run. If it did, look, I want to win more than anything. If it could work having those kind of guys – and you could actually get to the ultimate goal, then I'd do it. I, I just don't think it works that way. Now, you can have maybe a guy, maybe even a couple, if they're not real strong personalities. But if you're talking your key guys and, and those guys then have an effect on other people's attitudes and other people's commitment, I just don't think it'll work no matter how talented they are. And I think that the uh, success of teams like the Spurs – uh, over a long period of time, the success we're seeing with the Warriors now, things like that, I think bears that out. I mean, you know, the Spurs have had a long run of dominance here, and there's really no shortcuts to what they do. Uh, they take high-character guys. They develop players. Uh, they have continuity in what they do, and, and it's worked out. But we all want the results so much, J.J., that a lot of times you're tempted Hey, take that shortcut. This guy's more talented, and you know, you know, there's going to be problems, but you're willing to to take those on. And I'm not sure long term that that'll work. I completely agree with you, and I've been lucky. I've been part of some great locker rooms and some great teams and some great cultures, and at least in my experience, and and again, the Spurs are kind of the standard bearer for this. But at least in my experience. You know, even if that culture is great, you know, sometimes one bad apple can can ruin the whole basket of fruit, unfortunately. You know, a lot of it, you, you can maybe get away with a guy who is not as hard a worker, let's say. I mean, there, there's variations of of all of this stuff. So nobody's perfect and nobody's perfectly evil either. So, you know, there's variations. But you might be able to get away with a guy if he's not a guy that, necessarily negatively impacts everyone else. And that may be because the people you put around that guy are so strong 
that they can just say, you know what, it's all right. We'll use this guy because his talent can help us, and we'll do everything else. And, and to be quite honest, I think we had that kind of group in Orlando, you know, where mm-hmm. we could have injected somebody like that in there. I'm not saying it would have been good, but those kind of guys would not have affected you or Jameer Nelson or Richard Lewis. You know, sometimes you have the right group that can can take on a, a talented guy who may be a little bit lacking in some of the character things and at least for a short period of time, a year or two, uh, get results from that. You said something like, I, I totally agree with you. There's there's guys that are not, <laughs> they're not completely evil. Like, I'm not completely good. You're not completely good. Like, no one's perfect. I'm not, I, I agree with you. We're not saying that. But it's interesting because you, you mentioned like the breakdown of the culture and the breakdown of the locker room. It isn't overnight. And the times in my career where I've seen that culture break down, it's a buildup of small things. It's like that you know, that hole in the dam or whatever, the, the story in Amsterdam uh, about the hole in the dam. It's like just these little pings, you know, every day, these pings every day. And then all of a sudden, two months later, you know, the locker room's a mess. The culture's been broken. And sometimes it's one guy, sometimes it's two guys. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, the, the media and maybe fans have perceptions of some guys as bad locker room guys. And and that's not always the case. I, I mean, I've, I've had teammates that, you know, are coming into, a, you know, a situation – and a, and a good locker room, and I've heard terrible things about, and they, they turn out to be great guys and great teammates. So it's 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 an interesting dynamic. And as a front office, and a, as a you know a guy who is bringing in these guys, it's something that everybody has to balance. Just real quick, one last thing about Detroit. Uh, you kind of mentioned this, and I, I want to ask you about it. But for you guys to kind of take the next step, and again, I don't know what that next step is for you guys. I don't want to I don't want to assume anything. But for you guys to to get better. Is it about internal improvement? Is it about the roster you already have right now? Is it about your core kind of group of guys getting better together? Or is it about going out and, and getting maybe a, another great player? I know in Detroit, and Adam, your guy Adam and my guy Adam have, have said this, but it's, it's challenging in, in Detroit maybe to get uh, big-time free agents. So you guys have at least so far built through the draft and, and uh, trades. Yeah, look, I think our improvement comes three ways right now. You know, I think, first of all, like you mentioned, it is internal improvement. Um, We've still got a very young team. Uh, We have guys that have a lot of room for skill improvement, especially, and so that's got to happen. The other internal improvement that's got to happen is we've got to be more committed consistently on the defensive end of the floor. I think we... We came a long way with that this year, but not far enough. So that internal improvement will be key. We've got, you know, our top nine guys or so, all of them need to be better next year. And collectively, we have to defend better. I think the second way, like with everybody, we have to uh, improve our roster. So far, it's been primarily through trades. Jeff Bauer's done a great job there. We've made a number of of very good trades. Uh, our, our approach has been different than most teams. Um, we've been willing to give up cap space because we, we really didn't think coming in as a team that, you know, when we took the job five, the five years previously, we had the worst record in the, in the Eastern Conference. And so you're in a small, smaller market in Detroit. You know, you, you don't have the sunshine of, of L.A. or Miami 
you know, you're in a small market, you're not winning. We didn't think we'd be at the top of everybody's free agent list. And so our approach has been more, let's trade for guys that have years on their contract, guys we like that are locked in. Um, and so we've done that. And then obviously through the draft, we've got to improve our talent level. Uh, like I said earlier, without detracting from the character that we've built. And then the third thing is, is, uh, you know, we've got to have improvement from our end on the, on the coaching side in a couple of ways. I think I have a different group here than what I had in Orlando, younger and everything else. And I think I've got to first be able to balance being demanding with also, um, you know, being aware of the effect I can have on guys' confidence at times. Um, and so creating a little bit of a different um, environment. That'll be very difficult for me, as you know, but, but I have to, I'm not talking about being <laughs> soft. I mean, there has to be both. Yeah. There has to be that accountability. And at the same time, not having guys on the floor, afraid to make a mistake, afraid to take a chance. So uh, we've got, I've got to have improvement there, but also I, I've got to, we've got to have improvement in terms of our, uh, of our offensive system. We, we've changed our roster so rapidly and constantly been learning new people and new lineups that I, I don't think we've necessarily put guys in the best spots for them. I, I think by the end of the year, I finally had a handle on guys. And, and I think going into next year with probably a lot less changeover, we should be able to do a better job of that in terms of our offensive system. So, so it's internal improvement. It's improved the roster and it's improve uh, the job we do coaching them. Uh, and I hope those things, you know, if you get slight improvements in all of those areas, hope it adds up to uh, a substantial improvement. Well, from an outsider's perspective, and, and I'm not just saying this, but I think you guys have done a great job. You're positioned well uh, with your core group of guys. You're going to have a little bit of cap space again this summer. You know, there's no, there's no terrible contracts on the books. You may not be willing to admit those positive things, but I will admit them for you, that you guys are, are doing a great job. Uh, Stan, I, I know you don't have any problem ever getting seats to NBA basketball games, but not everybody's so lucky. I want to tell our listeners about SeatGeek. Guys, getting a good seat for games or a concert, it can be a tough ordeal, especially for a good price. That's why the best place to go when you need tickets is SeatGeek. You'd be crazy not to try it. They make it so easy. There's virtually no hassle in getting the exact seats you want. And it's pretty cool how they do it, too. So they pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and they'll let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value. So you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. See what I mean? It's easy and painless. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I use it all the time because it's simple and it works. Oh, and best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. They show you the full ticket price from start to finish and never try to trick you with huge fees on the checkout page. Now, pay attention to this next part because it's really important. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. Hey, that's 20 bucks right in your pocket. And to get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, and click add a promo code. Then enter promo code JJ. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier. So go support them like they support this podcast. 
Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code JJ today. Now, let's get back to our guest, Stan Van Gundy. All right, Stan, so we, we haven't spent a ton of time talking about Orlando, and I don't necessarily want to talk just about those five years there or anything, but the, the one thing uh, I do want to ask you about is the way those Orlando teams played and how that has affected today's NBA and where you see the NBA going in the next five years or so. I think it started, and maybe you'll disagree, but I think it started with those Phoenix teams playing small, playing fast, spreading the floor, pick and rolls with shooters all around, and then we kind of continued that in Orlando, uh, playing Richard and, and Ryan Anderson at the four for a lot of the time and having uh, you know Dwight roll and, and spread out the floor with a bunch of shooters. And now it seems like everybody's sort of emulating you know, that style of play. Did you imagine that that would happen in today's game, that everybody would be playing small? And and then secondly, where where's the game going right now? Uh, it seems to me like the, it would be, you know, everybody wants like a like a DeAndre Jordan or an Andre Jumman at the five and then a bunch of guards. Yeah, I think that's right. It was funny with us because, you know, our, our situation in Orlando and the style of play that emerged as much as anything, um, you know, it was an accident. I, I mean, what happened is two <laughs> things happened that sort of keyed it is, number one, the summer I came, our, uh, our big free agent acquisition was Richard Lewis, who ended up being a great acquisition. And to me, uh, was the guy who really turned that whole thing around from going from a 40-win team to, to being in the finals, you know. It, but we also, we had Hito Turkoglu at the same time, and so – we knew those guys were going to have to play together some. But quite honestly, I, I would have opened with, you know, and my plan going into the season was Tony Battini would have been our starting four, as he had been the year before before I got there. But in September, as you remember, working against Dwight in a uh, pickup game, he ended up hurting his shoulder and was out for the year. Well, yeah. you know, that left us with clearly our best forwards were – and our best options were for Richard and Hito to play together. And so it just came out of necessity. It wasn't like I was some genius and I sat down with a plan. Um, we had to adjust sort of on the fly in, in September, and it ended, up, it ended up working out. I agree with you on this, certainly, that I think Dwight was maybe the first guy, to be honest, in the new, what everybody wants now as the new breed of NBA yep. centers. Yep. You know, because he developed probably a little earlier on than DeAndre did. But those are the guys everybody wants now. They want defense, rebounding, pick and roll, lob, things like that from their centers. And they want to spread the floor out. And, and I think that, you know, that's what people are looking for in big guys. I think you see, you know, a guy like Robin Lopez and, you know, who had great effect, especially in Portland two years ago, but even in New York. This year, and I think with Hornacek coming in, you'll see him even do more uh, in New York. But I think what's interesting now, J.J., is everybody's talked about the four-out, one-in, and playing a lot of guards and spreading the floor out, which is certainly the predominant NBA style right now. But I think what we're seeing is the need to play a lot of different ways if you want to be a good team. And so Oklahoma City, who, you know – had considerable minutes this year where they had Kevin Durant play in the four, 
have now gone into the playoffs and played Steven Adams and Enos Cantor together a lot and played big. Certainly San Antonio played big numerous minutes this year with Duncan West and LaMarcus Aldridge. And so you're going to have to be able to play a lot of different ways and combat a lot of different styles if you want to be successful now. And I think as you construct rosters, you have got to have flexibility. And, and I think our team this year, especially when we got Tobias, was built more in that four-out, one-in role. But we got hurt at times by bigger fours. Kevin Love hurt us in the playoffs. And, and not having a, a bigger four in an answer there. Or do you have a guy who's a four-five type guy who when they move Kevin Love to the five can defend him out on the perimeter and in the post. And that's one of the things we're looking at this year is to try and to find one of those guys who increases our flexibility and our chances of playing big. You know, I I think you're seeing a lot of teams now playing two point guards together, and I think you've really seen the way the league's going, more so in the East and the West, maybe it's just by circumstance, but the importance of having quality backup point guards. You know, if you go down in the East, yeah. Corey Joseph, Matthew Della Vadova, Dennis Schroeder, Jeremy Lin, Josh Richardson. I mean, these guys have had major impacts on their teams as backup point guards. That's another thing um, that has hit us is, is having the ability to play two point guards together and certainly the necessity of having two point guards who can not only are good players, but who can create offense for your team and, the, and the, you know, the importance of that backup point guard position. So I think the trends even go beyond just the four out one in, even though that's the predominant style. I, I think there are other trends in the league that, uh, that we see that are important. And certainly the three point shooting, which everybody's talked about the attempts go up mm-hmm. every year. There's more guys who shoot it well. And then on the other side of it, you've got to be able to guard the three-point line also while still not giving up layups, which to me is the hardest thing to do is to stop both of those things. Yeah, as you're seeing in the Toronto-Cleveland series, they put such an emphasis on taking away the three-point line. And in those first two games, they they torched them in the restricted area. You, You brought up a lot of good points. I want to go back one second. Just an observation. The Richard Turk combo at forward. Do you remember trying to play Turk at the four initially and have Richard at the three? Do you remember that? Please, God, tell me. I, you I, I that. certainly do. You know, we were we were trying to decide uh, which way to go, and, and we started, and and um, you know, it would have been a uh, it would have been a major mistake. Number one, looking back on it, and again, we were just getting Richard and and learning yeah. him, but but Turk. Really is a really was a three man. Um, not by the time maybe you guys had him with the Clippers, but certainly there he was a guy whose best thing was you know playing and picking rolls and making sure. plays off the dribble and everything else. And Richard was let's just say the more willing of the two to make the move <laughs> to the four. I don't think either one of them would have been thrilled by it. Um, but as you know, Richard's one of the most unselfish, team oriented yeah. guys you could ever be around and you know, took on that four spot without, without complaint. And, you know, people were still, a lot of people were still playing big at that spot at that time. And he'd get down there and front guys in the post and, 
and never complain and, and had to really change his game too because he didn't have the, uh, the post-up advantage at the four spot that he had had in Seattle as a three-man and but did all of it with uh, with no complaints. And, yeah, it worked a lot better with Richard at the four than it would have with Richard <laughs> at the three and Turk at the four. And then we did move Turk there occasionally in small lineups, but we ran the exact same stuff with him at the four as we did with him at the three. So, uh, yeah, it wouldn't have worked with him at the four. Yeah, I, willing to play the four is a good way to describe it. Turk, I, I don't think, was too excited about it. You mentioned Richard again. Probably one of my three favorite teammates I've ever had in the NBA just an incredibly unselfish guy I mean really an incredibly unselfish guy and uh and was so important for those Orlando teams the other thing that struck me I, I had kind of forgot about that Tony Batie uh injury and you brought it up and 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 I remember it now and it's eerily similar to what happened in Golden State last year where their initial thought was we're going to play David Lee at the four we're going to play a traditional lineup David Lee gets hurt and then Draymond steps in uh, towards the end of the preseason, I believe, and 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 sort of the rest is history. And I, the other thing I want to say is I do agree with you. I think the trend in the league is to play smaller. Everybody's playing smaller. Everybody wants more versatile three and fours. But as we're seeing in the playoffs, the deeper you get in the playoffs, you need to be able to play both because the best teams can play both. And specifically Cleveland their roster makeover going back to when they lost you know, in the finals last year and, and playing kind of heavy iso ball and sort of out of necessity because of the injuries. But then you know, the way they're playing this year and, and their offensive efficiency numbers are through the roof, and a lot of it has to do with uh, the way they're, they're spreading the floor. Well, there's no question. Uh, but I have said this to people, and, and, and it may be an oversimplification, and it's, it's certainly not. Um, to take away anything from anyone else. But um, Cleveland does have great versatility in the way they can play. And it really all comes from one guy, from LeBron. I mean, you've got a guy that, you know, can play one through four, can guard one through four. You know, they can take Kyrie out of the game. They don't even really have to have a backup point guard in the game. He'll handle the ball. Um, You know, I mean, he can – guard so many people and do so many things offensively that it really frees them up. They can really look down their roster and put any other four guys out there around him, and it'll work pretty well because of his versatility. And so, you know, early in the year, they were even playing, you know, at times. Now, they haven't done this lately, but they played successfully with Mozgov at the five and Tristan Thompson at the four. And when Kyrie was hurt and Delavadova would come out of the game, you know, they'd play J.R. Smith and Richard Jefferson or, you know, Iman Shumpert, and, and LeBron would handle the ball. So they really can put anybody out on the floor with him. And, and I think sometimes when we're talking about the great players in the league, and particularly LeBron, things like that, and we can talk about numbers and everything else, but that's one of the things that gets lost with a guy like him is he just provides you with – so much versatility as a team um, to really combat any situation. I, I totally agree on the LeBron thing. I think <laughs> we were talking about this in the locker room the other day. If you pretty much put him on any team in any conference, th- that team probably is a contender to win that conference. I don't know that there's a situation where he can go to and, and you say, all right, he's not going to figure out because of his versatility and his skill set. 
uh, figure out a way to make his teammates better and, and figure out a way to win ball games. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention, and I've talked about this on here before, and you'll probably agree with me, but you know everybody talks about playing small and everybody uh, talks about wanting to play like the Warriors. And you bring it up with LeBron and the Cavaliers, but you have to have the personnel to do it. Uh, and there's only so many guys out there that can guard multiple positions, they can spread the floor, they can shoot threes. It's like, you know, after Richard and Ryan had that success in Orlando, there was a couple years there where everybody was about a stretch four. And and they're important and, and, and whatnot, but there's only so many guys out there that are stretch fours. Yeah, no question. And with the Warriors, and you play them more than we do, um, and obviously you guys have had some pretty intense battles with them the last couple of years, but they've got two of the most unique players in the league. Steph Curry, I, I don't think we've the league's ever seen a guy like him, you know, especially the way he shoots the ball off the dribble. So, you know, we can argue for days on who have been the best shooters in the history of this league, but the one I, I really don't think there's an argument is the best shooter off the dribble. You know, I mean, come on, the guy's range and he's, he's pulling up. I mean, you know, from 30, 35 feet, he hit one against us just coming up the floor in transition this year from the jump circle. I mean, yeah, just I shot that. it. KCP's yeah. looking at him like, oh, my God, nothing but net. I mean, you know, he, he's incredible. And then Draymond Green with his ability to, to guard virtually every position on the floor and his ability to make plays off the dribble. So he's not just a stretch four or a stretch five because a lot of those guys are just shooters. I mean, he's a stretch playmaking four or five. I think one of the problems, you know, you put those two guys together and people want to put two guys on the ball and, and blitz Curry's pick and rolls. Well, that's great. But now he's throwing it back to Draymond Green, who's attacking four on three. I mean, that's just a really, really difficult thing to do. So you're right. Everybody talks about, I want to play like the Warriors. Well, good. Then you better get, if you want to play like them and play effectively like them, you, you need Steph Curry and Draymond Green, and I don't know who the other guys are in this league who are like those two guys. You're exactly right. All right, Sam, you uh, have given us a lot of time. I really appreciate all of it, and your thoughts on basketball are great. I have one more question. This is so random, but as I was, uh, was kind of writing some thoughts and questions down before you came on the show, I had this really weird thought, and I, I thought to myself, does Stan ever go on vacation did you take a vacation this year? <laughs> you know what? It, I'll tell you what. When I was coaching, I did every year. You know, I, I did. It, it is a it is a little tougher um, with the two jobs because the season ends, and then you know you're thinking draft preparation and free agent preparation, and then you go to summer league and into the free agent period. So August this year, my wife and I were just talking about it this morning. Um, August this year is sort of our chance to uh, to do something, but trying to get it figured out exactly what that is. But we will get some uh, time. But it is a little tougher when you when you're doing both jobs. Well, I'm I'm actually glad to hear that you are literally one of the hardest working, if not the hardest working guys I've ever been around. Again, I appreciate the time. We all appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. I'd really like to thank today's guest, Stan Van Gundy. Remember to subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to the podcast. Please tweet me at JJ Reddick for any questions and comments. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, SeatGeek, SoFi, and Mac Weldon. 
be sure to support them the way they support us. All right, I'll see you guys next week.